listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Tim Lewis is a self-published author from London in the UK. He spent 18 years working as a computer programmer and IT manager in the world of financial IT. After the death of his wife, Tim reassessed his life goals and decided that he wanted to write stories. He writes in the science fiction and fantasy genres under his full name, Timothy Michael Lewis. To date, he's produced three books in the Time Shock series and two books in the Magpies and Magic series. Tim is also the host of the Begin Self-Publishing podcast, and he's with us right now. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hi, Paul. Lovely to speak to you. I've listened to your voice for many hours now because I've worked through the podcast, so it's great to talk in person at last. Um, The thing I say to you is you're technical by profession. You, You sort of come from an IT background, yet... You seem to be creative by choice. That seems to be quite a conflict, isn't it? The creative and the technical? Well, I suppose I would like to say that they don't need to be in conflict. Just because you're of a more technical background doesn't mean you can't also be creative. In fact, computer programming is many times much more creative than people think. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I was talking to a mathematician who said a similar thing the other day, actually. Yeah, I don't think there's really this dichotomy between... um, being technical and being creative. Um, obviously, I think that being creative possibly is more more valued in the non-technical professions, but I, I think you still need to have some level of creativity, whatever your technical background is. So did you always aspire to be a writer? Did you write when you were younger? I did write. Um, I've usually had like written in sort of fits and spurts. So I used to be a dreadful pantser and just basically start writing a novel and then write yeah, a couple of thousand words and then get myself into a dreadful bind and then put it into a, either into a drawer or more commonly into a sort of an unfinished word document. I've still got a few of my old unfinished word documents in on my computer now. I've taken them from old computers. So when you got started, how, how much did you struggle with it? You said you were a pantser, so you were just launching and hoping for the best, were you? Yeah. I mean, that was... That was the thing that I never, ever finished anything because until I started to learn to plan novels I, I, or, or novellas, I couldn't, I could never finish a book. I need to have that structure to actually finish like, writing something. And that was, that was the thing that I, I learned actually from a book called um, Write, Publish, Repeat uh, by the people who run the self-publishing podcast. Uh, they explained in quite long detail in that book about how they – created an outline first and then then write as fast as possible the first draft and then go through the editing process. And that's basically what's worked for me. So I, I spend my time creating the outline and then I, later on I write as fast as possible through the first draft until I get it finished. So you, you started, as you said, with, with novellas. About 20,000 words, is that right? It wasn't really a conscious choice, to be honest. It was I, I had a plan for what I thought would be a novel, um, and I tend to write in a very sparse, non-descriptive, focusing on the story point of view. So my novel turned into a novella. Um, and then once I've got, like, one novella, it was like, well, it was supposed to be in a series, so it didn't make any sense to have a novel and then a novella and then a novel. So the first three books were all novellas because the later ones I planned to be novellas, but the original book was intended to be a novel. And I just I finished it in about um, about... 15,000 words, and then padded it out a bit to get it up to 20,000 words. <laughs> so that you could call it a novella rather than a short story. I know. It's one of these things with the benefit of hindsight. I probably should have just left it as, I, as it was and uh, still read it as a novella. But I was very mindful of the definitions. It's like, yeah, commercially, you never want to write short, short stories. Yeah. Isn't the most important thing to actually get started? You must have. I know when I wrote my first story, just actually getting from A to B was a pleasant shock for me, just to find I could actually do it. And then I got impetus from that. Did you feel the same thing? Yes. I mean, it was it was a remarkably 
great experience to actually finish a complete book of any kind. Because as I say, I've got, I've still got loads of old things where I'd never finished it. I always got into a, a base because I was just writing it as I, as I went. I always ended up down some sort of dark alley where I couldn't get out, couldn't rescue the story. So I just gave up on it. Um, so it was good feeling, but yeah, I mean, I've improved with my planning abilities since that first novella, but even so, yeah, it was a great experience. And I think that's, that's where having some sort of organization to your writing is really useful. In the first uh, novellas, you were writing about, uh, you know, time travel. Yeah. And I heard you talking on the podcast about how you'd, you'd had some difficulties with that. I actually, I love reading time travel. I want to write time travel at some point. So what do you need to warn us off if anybody else is doing that? Well, I, I mean, I'm tempted again. I, I mean, I, I really love time travel and I watch loads of time travel TVs. One of the few things where I do read quite, well, I used to read quite extensively time travel fiction, um, but the big problem is there is a, a massive planning and editing issue with time travel, unless it's a very basic, like, you have to remember that, like, you're traveling back. So you've got this, you've got the same issues as historical fiction where you're going back or you're going, or, or science fiction, or going forward in time. But then you've got to remember where everybody is. And depending on whatever model of time travel you use, um, so I use basically the alternative uh, universe thing so that you you jump forward if you travel back in time and change something you jump forward back in time if you're jumping back to now to into whatever would the universe would be like with the changes you made then so it's like a different universe mm. and then i had to kind of remember in that universe what is all the stuff that's changed so that i don't <laughs> inadvertently mention it so it's a bigger it's a much bigger editing problem in a way um so yeah, it, it makes it a lot more complicated. Unless you do a very simple, basically, you just have one time travel jump um, thing, but then you're almost into the realm of historical fiction or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, um, I just wrote a series. My last um, trilogy was was based in the future, and I hadn't realised till I started writing it. Do you know what? It's really hard when you can't talk about things like mobile phones and Facebook. Yeah. Uh, when you have to actually invent something to to do the same job, and it's funny how you can find yourself in dead ends, isn't it? When you when you're writing a different genres, I think. Oh yeah, I mean every genre has issues. I mean switching over to fantasy, which I thought would be easier, but then you've got this like you can't take anything for granted, and you have to make a note of everything everything in the world. The world building becomes much more important in fantasy as opposed to time travel, where depending on where, how far forward or backwards you're jumping, it's more or less just the real world. So I think to say that time travel is really hard, it, it has its own issues. Fantasy has issues as well. So it, it, it's really a case you should probably just write what's most interested in, you're most interested in. But on the other hand, you've got to bear in mind that it can get quite complicated. <laughs> but then that's what I like about time travel. So I'm still going to give it a try. Yeah, you haven't, you haven't put me off. i tell you what I did like about your Time Shock books. The covers are great. And I heard, again, listening on the podcast, that you'd got those as, I think you've got one ready-made cover and then adapted the other two. Is that right? Yeah. So I bought the first um, cover. There's a, there's a South African company called De Monza. Uh, I think it's a guy called Damon and then the ZAs for South Africa. His actual, his prices have gone up quite a bit, actually, since I bought that original cover. But it was a, was a pre-made cover because being a time travel book i was looking for sort of a like an abstract design uh, and the and i saw that design original design as a pre pre-made cover um so i got him i bought the cover off him and i i said can you write a version uh, create a version with the with the actual um all my name and time shock on it but also give me a version without the actual actual uh, text on it so that i can put a new version on so then, I then for the other two books, I went into Photoshop and I just basically run some filters through, and 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 tried to match the fonts as best best I could because that's the hardest part in terms of uh, book covers. I I thought they looked great. I thought they looked brilliant for the genre, and um, they're very uh, startling. They jump out at you on Amazon. So very interesting that they were. Well, it was done on a budget, really, wasn't it? It was three covers for the price of one. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it cost me one hundred and twenty dollars. Uh, for the first one, and then the other two I made myself. So it's a pretty good return, that isn't it? That's uh, you pay a lot for covers, but I, I thought they were really, really sharp and eye-catching. 
Um, so you went from time time travel to fantasy. Was that was that like a rejection of time travel? I've had enough of the timelines, and I want to try something else. Or was it something you'd always wanted to write? I'd always wanted to write fantasy. I mean, I've always, I was more into kind of all the old what was dreadfully unfashionable in my day of Dungeons and Dragons, but it's now become much more all the sort of I was into all the fantasy role playing stuff. Um, and I also kind of wanted to write a more sort of comic fantasy uh, than a lot of the very shorter and more comic fantasy than a lot of the existing fantasy. I mean, I've read through things like Lord of the Rings, but it's a bit of a... For somebody who's not... Somebody who likes reading long fiction, it's a bit of a trawl through for a lot of the epic fantasy stuff. So I was trying to write something a bit different. Um, I think commercially, it wasn't the best decision in the world. <laughs> well, why, why is that? It just didn't sell or didn't didn't set the world on fire? Well, it didn't sell, but I think... I, I think it's hard to sell. You can't easily take a time travel audience and move them over to sort of shorter young adult uh, fantasy. Um, I was a bit try. I, I made it more young adultish simply because I thought, oh, well, young adults selling. Um, it's always a bad idea, I think, with anything to try and move what you're doing it to um, a different genre just because you think, oh, well, that's that'll be better. Well, actually, young adult is quite hard to sell to, uh, at least with a lot of the existing kind of social media and other ways to actually sell books, because it's a hard audience to reach. I totally agree with you. I wrote my two trilogies re- really as a young adult in mind. I don't think I've ever sold one to a young adult. I think they've all gone to <laughs> a crossover adult audience and who seem quite happy with it. They seem quite happy having protagonists who are you know, 18-year-old um, young men and women. No one seems to have a problem with it. And I guess uh, Divergent, Hunger Games, I go and watch those films and don't have a problem with it. So I guess that everything's shaken up a little bit now. We're not as clearly defined. The genres aren't as clearly defined. But thank goodness for that, because I wouldn't know how to reach a young adult audience like you. I don't know where you go. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is the problem. Um, I mean, I think an awful lot of adult readers of young, of young adult uh, fiction are people who don't want to read a long, complicated book. They like stories and they like, reading but they don't necessarily want to read some very literary or long descriptive novel because everybody's busy and so i think there's a lot to be said for sort of an easier style of reading for getting adult readers the trouble is it's kind of like if you actually do want to reach teen people and then it's like well i mean that's why i've been on snapchat and things like that but (laughs) haven't managed to get it to work because snapchat's a dreadful platform for discovery you can't it's really awful um so and have you had a skirmish with tumblr yet no no i've i've been on basically every because one of the great one of the great problems i've had is that i'm really really interested in things like social media marketing and anything new in the marketing or online or web space um i think tumblr is about the only one i haven't been on (laughs) Uh, I've been on, I've got low, I've got a fair amount of Instagram followers, Pinterest, um, Twitter, Facebook, well, Snapchat. Um, I, even, I even tried Anchor, which is a, like an audio um, social media network, but it's died a little bit of a death. It had a big sort of, um, a few months ago, it had a big surge of people on it saying, oh, this is the best platform ever. But then everybody realized it took ages to listen to all these other people sort of doing like audio tweets. Um, and so it died a bit of a death now. I remember that one. Yeah, you just brought. I, I remember that one. Yes, and I thought, no, I don't think it will because it takes time, doesn't it? There's a, you can't watch or fast forward or anything no, like that. It's like it was two minute audio clips, and then people could reply for a minute. But you think you've already got like took that three minutes. Like somebody replied, you've taken two minutes to record it, and then you've got another minute. And people just have given up on that. So I think everybody's looking for the nice new platform which is not a lot of work um hardly anybody's on it but apart from all your customers <laughs> <laughs> exactly and i want to explore your story about how you you came to write because it, it came through a, a terrible circumstance the death of your wife um but you seem to have undergone a, a life change when, when that happened can you talk us through that time yes i mean because uh, i mean the issue was that it wasn't just that my, I mean, it could have gone this way. My wife basically had a stroke in 2009 
Um, so she uh, she already had kidney problems, but they were kind of fairly sort of low key issues. But this make her more vulnerable to having a stroke. So in 2009, for a time, it looked like she might actually die on the night she had the stroke. I think my viewpoint of life would have been different if that had happened, but she did make, she did survive that, but she was very severely disabled for two years. Uh, she only got out of hospital a year later. Um, and we brought her home and, I, like, we had carers in and I cared for her and the rest of it. She was still very severely disabled, but she managed to, get, managed to get, regain the ability to speak and other things. And that does change your viewpoint on the world because it's very easy to forget about the fact that we're all mortal people uh, and we only have a limited amount of time on this earth to do stuff with things. I mean, it's, it's very easy to just sort of end up in this like day-to-day world where everything seems to be like the same. That said, after my wife, she, she eventually died of kidney problems in 2011. Even after that, even with this this understanding, this sort of flip switch in my head to say, you've got to make more with your life. You've got to try and do things, make some sort of contribution for your own sake as much as anything. It still took me until 2000 and I'm trying to remember now, it's 2013. Yeah, 2013 before I actually gave my notice in at work. And even then I was intending to do like IT contracting work. I wasn't intending to become like an author or a self-publishing podcaster or anything like that. But in my notice period for that, they, they basically, there was a bit of a, there was a lot of financial regulation going on. So I got this extended contract for another four months where I was only working three days a week. And I read the book, write, publish, repeat in my notice period. And I decided well, I'll give this a go. I'll try and write a novel because I've, like, I've got all of these unfinished fiction things. I'm not the world's... I'm not somebody who goes to writing groups and sort of talks merely about wanting to be traditionally published. I just thought, well, this would be something interesting to try. So then I did it. And then when my, note, when my contract eventually ran out, I was like, well, I find this world far more interesting than just going into work and being paid sort of wage slave. And I had the means to continue in terms of like I've got various rental income and other stuff where I don't have to. I've got a few years to try this out to see how it works. So that, that's kind of so I sort of drifted into self-publishing and online business, and it's just way better than working in the old sort of nine to five as a computer programmer with no kind of. There wasn't that I didn't enjoy. I, don't, I still enjoy programming, and I I've started to dabble back in sort of writing apps and other things. And I think I may go back into sort of more technology side of things as well as what I'm doing with podcasting. But I think you have to make the most of your life. It, people, there's a lot of people who say like life is a marathon and not a sprint. It's not really a marathon either. It's a like middle distance race. So you have, to, you have to take the opportunities to actually make the most of your life. Just try new things. And a lot of them won't work. Um, but those that do, it's like that adds something to your life. What I wondered was, is, had it made you lose any of the fear? I think this goes to the heart of what most writers experience. People spend a whole lifetime saying, I've got a book in me, I'm going to write a book one of these days. And then sometimes, you know, by the time the life's over they've it's passed it's too late and i just wondered if you've benefited from maybe just losing some of the fear involved in all of that um i suppose so i mean my biggest fear was the giving up giving my notice in even though i had a boss i didn't particularly get on with um things at work and weren't as great as they were it took me a very long time to make that break and I suppose the fact that I'd done that, I was then had enough momentum to go through the whole writing thing. Especially as I kind of had like, well, it, it, if it doesn't take off, it's not the end of the world. I think a lot of people suffer from the from the the viewpoints of other people, and I suppose that's where it's helped. As in, it's made me much more robust. So people, a lot of people won't want their stuff published because they're secretly worried that everybody will criticise it. 
I think you're very interesting too, because you really are um, an authorpreneur. You're an author who's who, you've got a podcast, for instance, and very involved in, in in social media. You're writing too, very interested in the process of it. I don't get the feeling that you outsource an awful lot with with your books. You seem to be pretty hands on with it all. How important is that role of author rather than just being a an author who just does the books? Probably too important. I mean, <laughs> I have done a lot of. I mean, apart from the book covers, and even then, well, like with the first one, I I bought one and then I I, I did the work to change them. It wasn't. It's not as hard with that simple kind of cover design to do, like create new versions. But yes, I mean. Uh, I have kind of bootstrapped from an ultra, uh, entrepreneur point of view a lot of the uh, earlier works. Uh, and that does, I mean, it saves a lot of money. But on the other hand, I think it does affect, they're not maybe as good a quality as they could be. I think it's interesting. I, I, I think you and I are probably quite similar in that, you know, we're not, we're not scared to get our hands dirty and, and give stuff a, a go. And I, I've just produced a video course about self-publishing and by the time i got to the end of it all i could think was why am i doing all this work why why aren't i why aren't i outsourcing all this i'm doing way too much i need to be writing a lot more that was my that's what i learned from my own course yeah i mean <laughs> uh, i mean i did a recent uh, my last podcast episode of my my podcast for those of you who, want, who might want to come over well I, I think it's a very natural they're very natural partners tim so I've yeah, no problem with, i think with the other way you're one you're sort of interview exciting authors and i'm interview either social media people or people about how to do things so it's a different kind of show or it's just me like my last show i was saying about this very issue are you a hobbyist or are you a business person i think ultimately for being a business writer you need to outsource as much as you possibly can because it's an awful lot of even just making decisions about whether you're going to do things takes a lot of energy up, uh, and you need an awful lot of organisation, which I have suffered with quite considerably a lot of the time, to be honest. I wanted to ask you about that, because, again, you know, I've, I've worked through your whole back catalogue of podcasts now. I found them very interesting. They're, they're really very, very interesting. Um, but I, I, I do sense sometimes that you struggle with the time management, with the, you know, the butt-in chair syndrome, yeah. the getting the work done how how do you cope with that well the last few years i mean i've literally only written first drafts in november <laughs> i've done like mm. nanowrimo which is national novel writing month which is a u.s mm. event where you basically spend the whole month with other people trying to write a novel and i i'm able to do like the fifty thousand words try and write stuff the rest of the year it's like eh, no it's not <laughs> i mean i think i will still keep writing books um, I still, I, I certainly want to finish off the Magpies and Magic series just because I, I like to finish things, um, even though, it, yeah, sales-wise, it's, yeah, it's not been great. But you never know, actually. With, I mean, it, this is one of the great things about books. Like suddenly, once the series is complete, then maybe people will start finding like the later books. I can make the first book free and that sort of stuff. And then you never know. It's like it could suddenly take off and I could start getting income from that. I'm more probably likely to do the opposite of you and end up writing non-fiction or doing more kind of course-related things. Or I'm probably more likely... I could well end up writing apps and other things. But I just need to kind of work out how I'm going to do all of that. I'm kind of thinking of going to like a co-working space. So um, so it was somewhere with, just with other people around. Because the hardest... Hardest thing about being somebody who sits at home all day is you don't appreciate how isolating it is, how demotivating it can be. Uh, there are some people who are naturally sort of so introverted that it's really easy for them to sit at home all day and just, say, write a book. And you hear about these people who spend, like, 13 hours a day just writing. I think I would go mad if I did that, to be honest. I don't know about you. Maybe you're, maybe you're sitting at home writing all day, but well, I, I can when I do it. I um, I use a sort of uh, extreme Pomodoro type yeah. technique uh, when I do it. So today I've written five thousand words, and I do that over um, I do it over an hour, an hour, and a ninety minutes uh, of distraction-free writing. So I could do five thousand in a day. First draft is what I do. So I write. I do write very intensively actually when I do it. 
Um, so that's that's a novel that's got to be finished by end of July. That'll be ninety thousand words by the end of July, um, as we record this. Um, but are you doing? Are you I, doing that at home, or are you doing that um, some sort of? Have you got an office place or something on those lines? No, I'm at home. I'm at home, you see. So I'm in my study now. I have a little study. Yeah. Um, away, I've got the family. I have to sort of work it around the family. So the family, while we're recording this, have had to turn Netflix off. So, so they have to tiptoe around oh, okay. when I'm doing things like this, you know. So, uh, no, I've got a study and I've worked here for, five, you know, five years really doing all of this. And um, uh, But, I, but I, um, I do work, you see. I have um, contracts. I do contract work. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I fit the contract work around the writing. So I uh, block off my writing days, um, and, and they're untouchable. I won't do any work. You know, I won't do any contract work on those days. And then the contract work is where I get my, which I love. You know, I'm doing a course tomorrow working with local businesses, and I get my, you know, my, soci- my sociability um, out of that. And when I'm traveling, I listen to podcasts. You know, I learn in the car. So... I, I'm sort of big on time compression, but I do, I agree with you uh, that if there's anything I miss about being at work, it's the camaraderie, yeah. the, the laughs in the office. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's that. And um, I think there is an element of organizing yourself. And if you've got, I mean, if I've got deadlines, I'm fine. Um, that's why I think NaNoWriMo works for me because I've got, well, I've got other people I can talk to and I've got this big, like you've got to finish your 50,000 words at the end of the month. So, so that works for me as a process. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm thinking of possibly, like, a few days a week starting to write apps in, like, a co-working space, and then maybe the other days I can actually start to write because it would be easier. So that's probably what I'm going to do in the future. But I don't know. I mean, I'm one of these people. I found this whole new world of online business and self-publishing, and I'm a little bit like the kid in the candy store. It's like, which one do you go for first? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then the podcast is a great platform, isn't it? Um, you know, to, to to bring people to you, and also the other thing I love about the podcast is you get to talk to people who could. It's it's like a, a university you could learn from from people. Oh and yeah, they'll come and chat to you. It's great. I mean, well, as I say, I ended up here listening to podcasts on the back of because that book I read, right, published Pete, was by the people who run the self-publishing podcast, um, Sean Platt, uh, Johnny B. True, and, and David Wright. And they run the self-publishing podcast. And so I, I thought, well, I don't really know what this podcasting stuff is, but I'll listen to their show. And then I, oh, well, I like that. And then I was like, well, I've got a while before my business is set up, so I'll start listening to some business podcasts. And then before you know it, I'm listening to like 40 hours of podcasts a week, yeah. <laughs> double speed. So yeah, it, it's an amazing, it's an amazing way to get loads of free information. What do you do to uh, market the books that you've got? Do you have a strategy for that, or do you just try lots of different things? I should have a strategy. Um, I haven't. For my, for my original um, Time Shop books, I well, they work on the basis that the first book is free, and that's 20,000-odd words. The second book's 99 cents, and the third book's 2.99. Now, the reason for... I mean, the third book being two ninety nine, it's value wise for a novella. Two ninety nine is quite a lot to charge in terms of US dollars. But as you know, the Amazon ebook royalties, you get seventy percent royalties when you're over two ninety nine, um, and only thirty five percent when it's lower than that. So for a while, I had the second book at two ninety nine as well, so I could actually get my sort of dollar, <laughs> dollar, dollar and a bit of revenue out of that. Um, but then I made that ninety nine. So the people who are thinking, well, I quite like this book, but the second one's too expensive, then go on to buy the second one. And when they buy, bought, bought the second one, they then go on to the third one. I've done a fair amount of building up followers on social media. I really love social media marketing. I go to conferences on it and that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that I should be doing. Um, but I'm not really, I'm more focused on my podcast at the moment, to be honest, than the actual book marketing. I even did a show on how poorly I launched my second book in my <laughs> Magic series. I heard that. I thought you were very, uh, almost painfully honest about it in that episode, actually. I, well, I mean, this is the thing. Yeah. I think for somebody's first ever book, if you've got a reasonable... Because I had quite a big following from people on LinkedIn. I had about 200-odd people on LinkedIn. All just people in, I'd met at work and other things. I've 
So for the first, I, I think if you, when you release your first ever book, especially if it's fiction, then there will be a lot of people who buy it just because they know you. I don't think you can necessarily rely on them, them to buy another book unless they really like what, well, I mean, a lot of people will buy your book and they won't even read it. You'll just sit on their Kindle. So I think with my first book, I, I, I mean, I got to one point, I, I got to number 10 in the UK time travel chart with that time shock first book. Um, I managed to screw up the links of my site so that anybody in the U S went to the UK Amazon store. Oh, no. <laughs> so oh, I managed no. to kill off a lot of my sales in the U S for the initial book. Um, but, yeah, that helped. If you can get your book into a chart of any kind on Amazon, either the 30-day chart or the actually the better sort of top 10 charts for a category, that in itself produces sales um, because people see it and they're also bought. People will buy it because they buy, like, top 10 books. They bought all the other books in the time travel chart or whatever. So I think if you get to a certain level with a book, then it, I mean, I still get sales and my time uh, quite a lot. Well, not not huge amounts, but I get a reasonable amount of sales with the Time Shop books. But with the Magpies and Magic one, it never ever I like I never got that kind of initial. I never got it into a chart, even though I was much more careful about the categories I put it in to try and find easier. Because there were various categories on Amazon that are easier to get into than other ones. Um, and there's a whole. I mean, there's a guy I talked to who runs this sort of analytics company called Kalytics. It looks at all the charts and the Amazon stores and how many how many sales there are relative to the number of books in the charts and all this kind of stuff. You've still got to have some sort of initial push. Um, and I know people say, well, get, email your email list. But if you haven't got an email list like most of us, then that's a bit of a problem. Um, so I think marketing, yeah, marketing's harder for books than people. For certainly somebody with just one book. It's really hard to push a book unless you've got a pre-existing audience, which is that uh, for that book. If you've already got an existing kind of group of people who are interested in one thing who know you and you write books about that, then you've got an audience you can transfer in and get you kind of the, it's almost like this in my mind, it's probably a dreadful analogy, but it's like critical mass with book marketing. If you can get your book enough people to buy it for a sustained period of time, however you do it, they just know you or, there are people who listen to your long-running podcast or whatever. You get that surge of people, and then you can get email addresses of people at the end of the book and all the rest of it. And then for the next book, you don't need to worry about having that surge of people because you've got your email list to work on. So I think that's probably the way to do it, which is another reason why I probably shouldn't have moved out of time travel into a totally different genre. Because <laughs> you, then you're starting for fresh again, really. It's, like, it's, a, it's not a great way in terms of marketing um sort of common sense it's not a great thing to do really but then i guess as you've already said you know these are just assets that will sit there they don't they don't gather mold or anything like that i was watching um was it on the sci-fi channel an arthur c clark story and i i can't for the life of me remember the name of it right now but they serialized it in three parts and i think he wrote it in 1959 mm. um and and you know if you an example of what a lifespan your books have got and that at any time someone might find them, the time might be right, the message might be right and they can take off. I think that's the beautiful thing about books. And this is incidentally something that I, this is why I moved out of internet marketing is that you were always building something, but it would go out of date so fast. Yeah. Uh, so you're always running to keep up. And I wanted to build, you know, assets that would, that would last over time rather than just burning up like stars, you know, exploding in the heavens. You know, that was, that was what I was trying to avoid. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, once you put the work in, hopefully, we, always, we all hope that somebody's going to discover and, and it might pick up. Well, I mean, the, there is an argument to say just keep writing books and eventually success will come. And I think there's some truth in that. I mean, even with, like, blogs and podcasts, um, you, you will get people like finding an old blog post and it's the same with books. I mean, if you've written 20 books and then suddenly somebody finds your 18th book that you wrote and they really fall in love with that, they're going to start thinking, well, what else can I read by this person? So then you get, you get like 20 odd sales and it's just there. But if you only got one book, you're going to get one sale. So you, you kind of get this multiplier effect 
just by the amount of content you have. As long as you don't, you don't do, you don't radically change. I mean, I think uh, probably with people, I guess people would go from fantasy to time travel. I'm sure if I wrote like um, sort of romantic fiction or something, it would be a bigger, bigger stretch to go. So yeah, the more content you have, either in a blog or podcast or with books, the number of books you publish, that gives you so many more opportunities just by having those extra kind of tickets. And there'll be people who find it, and then they'll find one, and then it'll go through all the rest of your back catalogue. What are your plans for Magpies and Magic, then? How, how long does that go on? Is it a trilogy or more than that? I was originally intending it to be five books. Um, but given that oh, I'm only really writing one book a year... Um, It'll probably be just this year. Will probably be the thing when I actually finish the first draft of uh, the third book, and it'll if I can work out a way to finish it because I was intending it. I didn't. My original idea, and I think this would work, but I was just so disorganised um, when I did it originally. I was intending to plan out the entire sort of series of novels in one go, but in the end, I only finished the first one, uh, the plan of the first one. So I have got a bit of flexibility. So I've got to write the plan for the third one, and then I'll try and finish the series off. Because you know, I want to do other things, and it's kind of like, well, maybe write some non-fiction books, do more technical stuff, maybe some other online business things. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to finish the series off, because I think you, as an author, you have to. You, you don't want to leave people hanging with a story that's never finished. I remember... When I was a kid, there was a BBC TV program called The Tripods, and it was mm-hmm, a yes. free. It was based on three books, and they only made the first two as TV series, <laughs> and then they cancelled the show. Yeah, that's terrible. Isn't I know, it? and it's like you can't, you can't. I mean, there are people who've read the books who like them, so I can't just le- let them go <laughs> and say, "Well, it's not selling, so I'm not going to bother with this." <laughs> so I will finish the series off, but yeah, it'll probably be three books. Um, What's the word count on those, Tim? On, on the Magpies uh, and Magic? Well, they were it's, uh, they're all nano rhymo ones. So I think the last one was about fifty-eight thousand words. Uh, the first one was about fifty-two. So it's fifty thousand words is what you're supposed to write in November. So they're on the very short end of novels, really. Some people for fantasy, some people would say they're almost novellas, but it's kind of like it depends what classification you use, really. A couple of things I just want to ask you about. When I, I always stalk my guests in a nice way and, and see what I can find about you online. And interestingly, uh, you came up as a Wattpad user yeah. when I was hunting around. How, how's that gone? For anything? Was it just a trial or has it worked out? I don't know. I mean, I've tried Wattpad. Um, I can see it can work for people. It's similar to, um, in some ways, to Goodreads. If you're prepared to put in the time to use them as a social platform... And I think you you can succeed as an author on these in terms of marketing. I mean, what I did with um, the Time Shop book, and I, I started to do it the Magpies and Magic, but ultimately stopped. Was I was serialising it on on Wattpad, mm. so I was releasing like a chapter a week, and then saying like, if you want to get the full version, it's available to purchase on Amazon. That worked reasonably well for the Time Shop one. For Magpies and Magic, it's like I've never got any. <laughs> I just never got anybody really reading it in the first place. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it can work. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily, I think the, the reason why I was keen to use it for Magpies Magic is it's supposedly more teenage-focused as a platform. Though what you hear is actually demographically-wise, the largest people who use Wattpad are the Philippines. Um, so you're not likely to get many Amazon sales uh, from indirectly from Wattpad, so yeah, it's it, it may be in a couple of years' time they all get old enough and they all suddenly rush onto Amazon and buy it. But um, yeah, I don't think there isn't even an Amazon uh, Philippines store anyway. So unless they buy it on Kobo or Apple, yeah, you're not going to get many sales directly from a lot of people on Wattpad. The other thing I noticed is that you're listed on on Goodreads and. Um, I think people on Goodreads are very stingy with their stars. You seem to do all right on, on Goodreads. How have you managed that one? Well, for a lot of the time, because um, I had a, I decided to set up, set up a company um, after I sort of um, was sort of working full-time on this. 
and it took absolutely ages to get all the bank account stuff. There was some sort of change in the UK regulations that meant they had to do a load of extra tech. So it took like six weeks to get a bank account for the um, for my company. So one of the things I did in the internet, as well as listening to loads and loads of podcasts, was I went onto the um, Goodreads time travel group, um, and I had quite a lot of kind of interactions with people on all the message boards and things. I haven't really been on there quite a while since then. But I think that helped in terms of a lot of the reviews for the book. Because if you're... I don't actually think... I mean, Goodreads seems to have a bad reputation for people, but I don't... I've never found most of the people on Goodreads to be that bad. They just tend to be more kind of... As long as you're respectful to people and you don't... I think a lot of people, they expect sort of five-star reviews, and that's just not the culture on Goodreads. I think people are much more conservative in their ratings. I think that's the main reason why people think that everybody's stingy on there. But it's more that, well, they're, they're five, five stars is an exceptional book. It's not necessarily just what you give every book, which is more what people do on Amazon. Oh, I, I agree with that. My, my wife's on Goodreads, and she says, well, you know, generally, she reckons it's about a star down. What, what you get on yeah. Goodreads will be about a star down on, on Amazon. She, and she never gives away a five-star either. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've just learned, learned to live with that. But I did, it just struck me that you had some strong, you know, strong reviews on there, I thought, because uh, elsewhere on Amazon, you've got quite a range of reviews. How, how, how do you deal with it when you get the negative ones? How does that make you sort of feel? Does it knock your back, or are you okay with it? I'm not going to say, oh, I love all the one-star reviews or this is written by a five-year-old or whatever. Well, as I've mentioned in my own show, actually, it's like a lot of the problem I had with reviews on Amazon was, with hindsight, it was my own fault. You know, I, was, I, I did a little bit of Facebook um, advertising, which was fairly successful, actually, you know, like targeting sort of people who like Doctor Who and that sort of stuff in the US. Now, I got a little bit cocky, and I was looking for like other other things to target, like books. Uh, and I came across this, uh, one of the few sort of uh, Facebook categories was sort of a book called Time and Again. And I'd never read that book. Um, but I thought, oh, I'll advertise it. So I advertised, and I got a fair amount of sort of uh, sales. I think my book was 99 cents at the time, that first book. The trouble is, after I read the book, it's just the total opposite of mine. <laughs> it's mm. really historical fiction, it's extremely descriptive. Uh, I frankly found it rather boring in the middle of the book. <laughs> and there's no storyline on it. It's all just about trap. So the people who are going to like that book are going to hate my book. And I, I think that is where I generated a lot of my one stories. <laughs> so it was yeah. my own. I mean, one of the great things that people don't say about marketing um, is that you can go very wrong. It's not about just getting people to look at your books. You want the right sort of people to look at your books. You have to understand who your target market is. Um, and, and, I mean, one of my issues with my magpie is the magic thing. I haven't really identified who my target audience is for that. If you target your books to the wrong people, you can end up with terrible reviews. They may buy it because people buy – a lot of times people buy things. That decision to buy is not based on whether they're the right person to like that book. So it's like you might see a nice cover or you might see it. I mean, some people read the samples, but some uh, most people don't. Most people might look at the reviews. The decision to purchase isn't based on the quality of your book. The decision to purchase is based on your marketing. But whether they leave a review and whether they come back to buy your later books is determined by the quality of your book for what they consider to be quality or not. So one person's quality book might be another person's terrible book. And you'll see this, like, even for, like, hits like Harry Potter, there will be some people who write, like, really scathing reviews about anything. So, yeah, I think targeting the right people is something that people don't think of enough. A lot of people just think, I want to get my book in front of people. It's like, yeah, do you really, or do you want to get in front of the right people who will really like your book? That's the better strategy if you can work out how to do it. Of course, that's, that's yeah. a rub, really, isn't it? Well, as I was saying, there's a, there's a good lesson in that, I think, from the from the error you made with the targeting. You make a very good point there. Um, let, let's move on to the podcast, your, your podcast rather yeah. than mine. Um, I, I highly rate the podcast. I'm very happy to give it a massive plug on mine because, to me, the, the two are, are complementary. 
um, I, I love the way you dig into the, it's not fair to say the technicals because it makes it sound like it's, you know, it, it, it's too technical. It's not at all. But I think you, you delve very much into the how and how it works and what works, you know, more, more than I do. I'm talking to, to authors generally. What, what's your aim with the podcast? Why did you set it up? And is it built around your author career or do you have other, other plans for it? It's not at all built around my author career, really. Um, I am planning at some point, and you're well ahead of me here, on actually doing some like self-publishing training. Though my main ambitions really with the podcast was that I'd listened to like quite a few self-publishing podcasts. Obviously, yours didn't, yours didn't exist at the time I was when I launched my podcast. So I'm sure I would have been like, oh, there's no point in launching my show because Paul's doing his one. Um, but it was always a case of like there was an interview with somebody and then they might mention something about a technique somewhere in the show and then they just have a big load of chit-chat and all the rest of it. And I was like, well, I really wanted a show which was just about the nuts and bolts of it, like how to do things. Now, even with me, I've started to interview people and I've started to have more sort of looser shows, but I always try and keep it as focused as possible. I mean, there's loads of loads of shows and places where like authors are talking about how they like to write and all the rest of it. But this was just about self-publishing. So that was the aim of the show. And it was to try and, because you know there were a lot of sharks um, in self-publishing. I mean, there's quite a few companies associated with some of the big publishing houses which basically give self-publishers a poor deal. They claim that they're going to sort of do all this marketing stuff and then they charge people thousands and thousands of dollars and nothing happens. And then they've got all the rights to the book. So I wanted to steer people away from that. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of the get rich quick on Kindle in 10 minutes kind of. You see a lot of courses where somebody's knocked off something in Word in 10 minutes and it might have worked in 2011, but now it doesn't work. So I wanted to just have a podcast that was between those two extremes, which helped people make informed choices about self-publishing. It works very well. It's a very interesting listen, and I do think you're getting uh, guests on the show that I'm not hearing anywhere else, which is which is great because you'll know that when you do the rounds with the podcast, you do tend to hear the same people popping up all the time. So um, I, I find it, you know, very refreshing, and I think it brings something um, new to the party. So thank you for that. It's uh, you know hopefully well worth your time. Well, I've noticed you've um, you've gone for guests that are generally people who haven't been interviewed anywhere else. So. Yeah, you're keeping up the good work yourself. So. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's right. My strategy was I was fed up with hearing the same people saying the same things, and then they're all on the same podcast where they've all got something to sell. And and I, I thought that so my policy was, which is why I was pleased to find your podcast, is is um, you know to hear some different voices because um, I was hearing people say I'll oh, spend three hundred quid a week on Facebook ads and things like that. Well, you and me know we're not in that position yet. You know, that's just not something we could consider. Um, from a business point of view, and I wanted to go right back to the basics and say to people who were at my stage, how are you doing it? You know, how are you shifting the books? And um, there's a lot of gems that you can learn, I think, from people who are just right at the beginning of that level. You're often things that you might overlook when you're spending your £300 on Facebook. Yeah, um, well, I mean, the trouble is that when I, in our pre-chat before we, uh, you, you press the record button, there is a real thing online with people selling stuff that worked for them like two years ago or a year ago, and it's anybody's guess whether it still works. Um, they're not necessarily going to know because they're not necessarily doing it anymore, and it's a very different position to be somebody with a large audience already than somebody who's starting out. So you always have to take these things with a certain pinch of salt. I, I think you can, you can make progress with things like Facebook ads, but... This is why I've always made an effort to sort of follow marketing rather than like following a second-hand person who's a sort of read, read, gone on somebody else's course. I'll try and find the original person and listen to what they're doing because they've moved on usually a couple of years, maybe six months a year ahead of the person who's then regurgitated. And there is, I mean, there's some, there's some benefit from some people who are then take this other person's work and they keep up with it and then they properly mould it to the the book world that makes sense and there are some people who do like mark dawson is somebody who does this i think fairly well he he takes a lot of the facebook advertising stuff and pushes it more towards kind of the book selling world 
But there's a lot of other people who were just they 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 read somebody's book a couple of years or they did somebody's course a couple of years ago had some success, and yet actually the results of their courses now are fairly ineffective in selling books. So. And it certainly changes very fast. Let's let's finish off with the writing. We'll come back to the writing and give you a chance to plug the podcast uh, when we finish. What what is coming next then with the writing? It's it's Magpies and Magic, the th- the third book we hope by the end of the year. Can I push you to that? Oh, I doubt it'll be the end of the year. Um, <laughs> come on. Well, the last two months I've I finished the book, the first draft in the end of November, and then working with my mum, who used to be an editor in the nineteen sixties, so. She's cheap, pay, uh, cheap labour for me. <laughs> I work with her <laughs> editing the, the book. Yeah, you made me laugh. That I thought, you know, my my mum doesn't understand my books at all. Yeah, because they're they're sci-fi. So does she? Does she get on all right with them? Because my mum just doesn't get it at all. No, well, yeah, it was a bit of a the time travel stuff was a bit of a. Uh, but she's yeah, I mean, she's much better with the magpies and magic thing because it's much more understandable. Even though I've actually introduced a bit of sneaky time travel in the second book, so. <laughs> Uh-huh. but only yeah it it's not nothing too complicated um but no it will probably be if keeping up with that one it'll probably be released next sort of march time um what i what i mean to do and i haven't got around to doing it is to actually set up an apple pre-order for the third book um mm. because pre-orders is supposedly the way to sell books on apple um because all unlike amazon where pre-orders are, are registered when you when they are bought. So if somebody book, if I put my book as pre-order for next month and they bought it now, it would register now as a sale, not when the book's actually released. On Apple, everything in the pre-order period comes onto the Apple chart on the day of the release of the book. And you can do Apple pre-orders for a whole year ahead. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I should be doing, I should have that as a pre-order, but I haven't got around to setting it up yet. So... But knowing me, I probably could do a pre-order for May next year. and <laughs> I might have actually got around to releasing it by then. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll wait with bated breath yeah. then for the for the final instalment. Tim, thanks ever so much yeah. for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate it. I always just give people an opportunity to, you know, plug the podcast, plug the book. So if you just want to give us a few links where we can find out more about you. Well, my podcast, um, you can either find it on iTunes or Stitcher, or you can go to beginselfpublishing.com. Um, for my books you want to go to stoneandpress.com that's brilliant thanks ever so much for your time today really appreciate it okay very nice to talk to you paul thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys if you enjoyed the show please consider sharing it with your indie author friends or you can leave a review on itunes stitcher or whichever podcast directory you use if you're new to self-publishing you might also like to check out selfpublishingacademy.com the step-by-step guide to getting your manuscript off your hard drive and into print. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.